As you may have detected, this is a pretty intense opening. This is a pretty intense book. Galatians is like a battle over the identity of the gospel. You can see this right away in verse 6. I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there's some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one, there's this other gospel, this distorted gospel, this gospel that's no gospel, it's actually contrary to the gospel. So Paul is writing here in a very tense and intense situation. Already, within 15 years of Jesus' death, the identity and nature of the gospel itself is at stake. And that's what the first book of the New Testament is being written about. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is to get all of us sort of on the same page, we're going to tell the story of the book of Galatians, how it came to be and why, and along the way touch on some of the big themes that Paul addresses here. So we'll get back into Galatians pretty soon, but let's go back to Acts chapter 13. So turn back in your Bibles or your devices to Acts 13. We're going to be doing some turning and reading today, so if you don't have something out to follow along with, I worry for you. <laughs> I worry for you. There are Bibles, yeah, Bibles in the, in the lobby. There are phones in your pocket. I would suggest you find and make yourself familiar with one of those things. We're going to just kind of jump in midstream in our story here for the book of Galatians. It really starts back in Genesis, but we'll start here in Acts 13, where the Apostle Paul goes on what is called the first missionary journey. He is in, you can see this in Acts 13.1, he's in the church of Antioch in Syria. This is kind of a picture, which I can read, I can see pretty well, but I don't know if you can. Uh, this is a picture kind of of the Mediterranean world at this time. You can see Jerusalem in the bottom right corner, and directly above it, about a foot on the screen, is Antioch. This is where Acts 13 opens up. Paul is in Antioch, and he's in a church with a pretty stacked deck of leadership. You can see this in verse 1. The church at Antioch had prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Like the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, who here in this context is called Saul, in the Jewish context he was called Saul, and in in, when he's in Grecian context, Roman context, he's called Paul. But you can see he's not even in the top three of the, of the people in Antioch that they list off that everybody who would have been receiving the book of Acts would have known. You know, everybody wouldn't be like, no way, they had Menaean and Simon at that church? I can't believe it. And Paul, he doesn't even crack that, that group. So Paul's in this, this church, and they send him out on this missionary journey, the first missionary journey that's ever been. They send him off, and they send him where? Let's go down to verse 13. Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, a different Antioch. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So this is the first time, this is the moment the gospel comes to the region of Galatia. You can see a little bit more uh, 
close-up map of Paul's first missionary journey. You can see Pamphylia in caps, and then the top town is Antioch. That's where this takes place. Paul, as was his custom, he goes to a synagogue of the Jews. So I just want you to, to let that register for a second, that, that Jerusalem is not even on the map, right? Like, almost all of Israel is not even on the map, but there's a synagogue a worshiping assembly and a group of Jews who built a synagogue all the way up in Antioch and Galatia there. That means that there's a pretty significant Jewish presence in this region, but that it's far away from Jerusalem, right? So they don't feel very, you know, uh, they don't feel loved by the motherland where they're at. They're kind of out on their own, but there's a big group of, there's enough of them to be a community. There's Jewish town in Antioch probably with Jewish restaurants and so forth. There was enough of them to be a community there, but they're kind of far away from, from the hometown. So you can kind of get a sense for how they might feel about their Jewishness. They might be pretty sensitive about it, which we're going to see here in a second. So Paul stands up and he begins to tell them about Jesus. Let's skip all the way down to verse 38 of chapter 13. I would encourage you to read... Uh, Acts 13 to 15 as a helpful context for Galatians if you have time. So Acts 13, verse 38, towards the end of Paul's sermon, he says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, he's kind of wrapping up, brothers, that through Jesus, this man that I've been telling you about, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. I want you to think about this with the ears of of a Jewish person. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Hang on, we love the law of Moses. What are you talking about? Freed from things that the law of Moses couldn't do. Beware, therefore, lest what it said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Paul's already sensitive to the fact that what he's telling the Jewish people here is probably going to be difficult for them to accept because it's such an extraordinary new thing, this new work. Picking up in verse 42, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Uh Uh-oh. For as the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The difference between Jews and Gentiles are the Jews are Jews and Gentiles is everybody else. Right? So that's kind of the basic distinction from a Jewish perspective of the world. Us, everybody else. It doesn't really need to get finer than that. Jews and Gentiles. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Verse 50. Now here we we go. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. 
But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So now there's a church in Antioch. They head uh, east and go to Iconium. Now at Iconium, they enter together into the Jewish synagogue, again, Jewish synagogue, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Same, same deal as we saw in Antioch. But again, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Do you know what, what stoning is? It's not what they're doing in Colorado. <laughs> uh, stoning is uh, when, uh, as a, either as a legal punishment or as a, uh, an act of mob violence, um, a group of people take an individual and they bring that individual's body into contact with stones in such a way that the person dies. So this is a capital punishment that they're talking about doing here. And there was a sort of orderly version of stoning that the rabbis kind of like prescribed. If you're going to do this thing, this is how you should do it. But stoning more often, and we're going to see this, it more often happened as a sort of act of mob violence. It was basically lynching, but in a country without a lot of trees, but with a lot of stones. That's what it was. And so you can imagine that when a group of people who for, are so extraordinarily angry that they're going to pick up stones in order to end this person's life, that that gets kind of out of hand quick, and it gets pretty disturbing and violent. So Paul and Barnabas don't want to have anything to do with this. So they run down to the next group of towns, so let's pick up our story in verse 19. So they just escaped being stoned in Iconium. Verse 19. But now Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Why are they, why are they so after Paul? And they, they stoned him so successfully, so adequately, that they, they felt they could walk away and he was done. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, churches in all of these towns in Galatia. When they had preached the gospel to, to Derbe and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples because they're certainly facing persecution from the Jews. And they encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. And then Paul and Barnabas go back home to Antioch in Syria, their, the sending church. And then we come to chapter 15. And look at chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. This is when Galatians was written. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers in Antioch, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, 
Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And this kicks off what is called, you can see probably in your Bibles, the title there, the Jerusalem Council, to figure out the nature of the gospel. But Paul had already written the book of Galatians at this point to answer for these churches in Galatia the question of the identity of the gospel. Do we have to be circumcised to be saved? Do we have to keep the works of the law in order to come before God in this way? So these are ethnic Jewish Christians who are saying that Gentile Christians need to keep the law, and especially circumcision is the big one there, in order to be saved. Why? What don't they get about Jesus? Why do we have to do all these things, these extra things? What would they say to that? And why are these Jews so intent? Why are they literally hunting Paul through Galatia and then trying to stone him? What did he say about Jesus to so enrage this group? What would it take for you to participate in stoning a person to death? What would they have to say? Because that's all Paul's doing. He's saying stuff. What would they have to say for you to be like, you're dead? What would that be? What would, what would make you cross that line? It's kind of interesting because uh, we have here Paul being stoned. The first time we meet Paul is at another stoning. Stephen, who is the first uh, martyr of the Christian church after Jesus, uh, Stephen was a deacon in the Jerusalem church, and he was... Uh, having an argument with the Pharisees and the leaders of the church. And he makes this statement. He says, you people are, are uncircumcised in hearts. You don't w- truly worship God. You break the law of Moses. And it says that they were all enraged. And then Stephen says, hang on, hang on, hang on. Oh, I see heaven being opened. They all quieted down for a second. He says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And they go, ah! And they grab him and they run outside the city, grab stones and murder him. And Paul's standing there. This Paul that just got stoned was there at the first stoning in the Christian church. And it says that Paul approved, he heartily approved of what took place. Why was Stephen stoned? Why was Saul so pleased with Stephen's death at that point? Interesting, there's actually one other stoning in the New Testament, uh, almost stoning, that happens to Jesus. He goes back to his hometown in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. He goes to the synagogue. He reads from Isaiah. Um, this, this passage says, uh, The Spirit of the Lord's upon me, and today I'm here to announce God's favor. He rolls up the scroll, stands up, and says, Today that is fulfilled. That's me. I'm the guy on whom is the Spirit of the Lord, here to give God's favor. And everybody's like, Well, really? Jesus? We know his mom. We know his dad. And Jesus says, There were... There were in the days of Elijah many widows in Israel, but the Lord sent Elijah to a widow in Syria. And there were in the days of Elisha many lepers in Israel, but the Lord sent Naaman the Syrian to Elisha. And it says that everybody was so mad by what he said that they grabbed him 
And they took him to the brow of a hill, which is actually in the rabbinical proper way to stone a person to death, was the first step. You would chuck him over a cliff. If that killed him, good. If it didn't kill him, then they probably couldn't get away too well, and you could finish it up. So Jesus uh, narrowly avoids getting stoned. Why? What is the deal, right? What threat would it have to be for you to participate in this? You know, ladies, if this is all too gruesome for you, what, what kind of threat would you have to be like, oh, I'm glad my husband was a part of that. I'm glad my son participated in that because that needed to be stopped. And it needed to be stopped in no uncertain terms. This is the background for the book of Galatians. Let's turn to Galatians now. This is what's happened to Paul as he planted the churches of Galatia. And Paul himself was familiar with this process on both sides of the stone. What is the deal? Why are these why are people getting so upset? And it has to do with a word here that we're going to well, I'll explain for you right away, but look down with me at Galatians 2:15 to 16. I'll start in verse 14, I'm sorry. This is the very sensitive subject of justification. It's a very sensitive subject. Now you might be like, that's not a sensitive subject. That's a super boring subject. Just hang with me. Look at verse 14. Uh, Paul is telling a story here in Galatians 2.14 about a time where Peter was out of line there in Antioch. You can see in verse 11 when Cephas, that's Peter's, uh, another nickname for Peter, came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face. All right, now skip down to verse 14. When I saw that Peter and Barnabas and their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Gentiles becoming Jews, that's the subject of justification. Should Jews become like Gentiles? Should Gentiles become like Jews? Which group is justified? So the subject of justification is the, is the answer to the question, who is right? Who is right? Are the liberals right? Or are the conservatives right? Is Putin right? Is the Ukrainians right? Who's right? Who are the people who are going to stand before God on the last day and God's going to say, you're right? Who are those people? How can you tell who they are? What marks them out as a people? That's the question of justification. It's not me, my individual personal relationship with God all by itself. It's about which group are we a part of? Who is God going to say you are justified? In uh, other language that that Paul uses in Galatians, it has to do with the question of uh, being Abraham's heir. I'm going to be the heir of the Abrahamic promises. I'm going to be the, in the group that receives the Spirit of God. These are really big questions, really big questions and really sensitive ones because we're talking about subjects that are part of a person's settled identity. 
Like you don't, you don't even think about these things anymore. They're just who you are. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, the Pharisees won't participate in his baptism stuff, which is actually related to this, but I won't tell that story. The Pharisees won't participate, and he says, don't, don't you presume to say for you, to yourself that we have Abraham for our father, and so we're good. That's part of their settled identity. We are the heirs of Abraham's promises. In fact, they say that about themselves in John chapter 8. They're arguing with Jesus in the book of John, and they say, we have Abraham as our father. Like, this is just a settled fact about our identity. And Paul's saying, well, I don't don't know. But you're touching on that. You're touching on some very powerful things. This is a sensitive subject because it's about settled questions. It's also about political subjects. We're We're talking about right and wrong at elemental levels. Who is right? Who is wrong? We're talking about our group's identity. And politics and identity are just interwoven, right? We get political about things that touch us at that identity level, right? We pick up stones when subjects get brought up that make us feel like something elemental is at risk in me. Political questions also are part of what forms our group identity, Right When there's a big political problem and then everybody kind of groups up. And now we become the this or that. So politics and identity are closely related. So who is right and how can you tell? There's three groups in this context who have an answer to this question and they all affect uh, how we understand Galatians. Uh, the first is this, the Jewish people. Right, so the Jewish people had a very clear, very settled answer to who is right. The Jews are right. Specifically, the Jews who keep the law. There's Jews that don't keep the law, they're wrong. But the Jews who keep the law are in the right. We are the ones who God will justify. And you can tell that we are the ones because we do the works of the law. We keep holy days. All of our males are circumcised. We honor the temple. These are, these are what are called the badges of identity that are peculiar to the Jews. Badges of identity. Nobody else in the Roman world did these things unless you were a Jew or you wanted to be with that group. And there were some Greeks and Gentiles who did. So the Jews who keep the law are the ones who are right. And especially not, this is so important for understanding the dynamic here in Galatians, Especially not those dirty, stinking, sinful, Gentile pagans. Right? You couldn't touch a thing that a Gentile touched if you were a good Jew. You couldn't touch a thing a Gentile touched. You couldn't go under the same roof as a Gentile. You couldn't sit at the table with a Gentile. Like, it's a very political part of the Jewish identity. So this is the Jewish answer. The second answer, and this really gets to the, the, the conflict on the ground in Galatia, in these churches, and that is uh, the viewpoint of the Judaizers. So these are not just Christian Jews. These are Christian Jews who want everybody to be Jewish to be Christian. So the Jewish and Christian identities are one and the same for them. Their answer would be, uh, who is in the right? Who is justified? Well, Jews who trust Jesus and keep the law. So they, they would have both things. They trust Jesus and keep the law. And you can tell 
What marks them out as such is that they worship Jesus and they do the works of the law. So even though they go to the Christian worship service and take communion with the other Christians, they also observe days and months and years, as Paul says here in Galatians. They also are circumcised. And so, I mean, obviously, it almost goes without saying, if you're a Gentile and you believe in Jesus, you have to become a Jew. You have to become a Jew, and that includes, that includes circumcision, or else you're just not part of God's people. You know, it's important to understand something about circumcision here. Galatians talks a lot about it. If you know what circumcision is, then you know, and if you don't know what it is, then you don't need to know, probably, right? So that's all I'm going to say about it. Uh, circumcision was an initiation rite. It wasn't about your personal relationship with God. It was a rite that you had to do to get into this group. It was like a hazing ritual. You had to go through this in order to be considered a part of this group. That's what circumcision was. Now, the Judaizers had a little bit of a, uh, an other motivation. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 12. So they wanted to be justified before God, but they also wanted to uh, avoid something. It says here in Galatians six twelve. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So, so again, think about this culturally for just a second. Getting these Gentiles to become Jews in order to be Christians is helpful for these Jewish Christians because it will pacify the Jews who, like in Acts 14, might stone you if you don't honor their Jewish uh, identity, uh, their badges of Jewish identity. And since most of us are Jews and we live among Jews who hate Gentiles, but who super hate Jews who compromise with Gentiles, you know how that goes. It's not just those people, right? Like we're at war with some country. Well, we don't like those people. What we especially hate are people who compromise with those people, right? And that would be who the Judaizers are. So they're like, no, 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 we want, every, we want all the Jews to know that we are honoring the law of Moses and we're making sure Gentiles get, become Jews before they become Christians. Which seems like a pretty safe political strategy. One that was devised in the Jerusalem region where everybody's a Jew and where the Jews could kind of have you killed whenever they wanted and Rome would kind of be like... So it really worked for them there. But out here, even much more of a serious issue. And then we have Paul's perspective on who is right and how can you tell. Who's right? Who do you, how would you answer that if, based on what you know about Paul? Who's in the right? Just Jews? Anyone. Who what? Puts their faith in Jesus. That's it. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, how can you tell if they're a part of that group? Well, Paul says they love people. They love people by the work of the Spirit in their lives. And he says those people, those are actually Abraham's true children. Hey, everybody in this room who trusts Jesus can say, we have Abraham for our father. Not the Pharisees. We do. We are Abraham's heirs and true children. And if a person is in Christ, they are inside the righteous one. 
And so they are in the group, in Christ. He's the group who on the last day, God will say, you're righteous. And everybody who by faith is in Christ, they get that too. And look with me at Galatians 1, 8 and 9. Anybody who says otherwise is cursed. If we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What does that mean? That's not just like uh, an unkind hand gesture or something that you would say to a person who cut you off driving or something. This is, a, uh, this is saying that person is now to be cut off from your community. They are to be cut off and cast out from that people. That's what he's saying here. This is a very serious, very big, very sensitive subject. Right, how would you feel right now? Are there any uh, Russian citizens in this room right now? Who? Any, any? Okay, so how would you feel? Any American citizens in this room here? Got a couple? All right, so how would you feel if you were at a barbecue and somebody's like, yeah, I just decided to become a Russian citizen and a communist. You'd be like, hang on. Say that again. You, oh yeah, yeah, I told I went over to Moscow, I got, I went through their whole class system or whatever, I got naturalized, I, you know, I did this, that, or the other, so now I'm a full-on card-carrying member of the Communist Party of Russia, and I've renounced my U.S. citizenship. Or what if somebody went and joined the, uh, the Hutu tribe in Africa? They're like, yeah, all of the ritual brandings we had to do, I had to do the 14-day fast in the wilderness with, like, being pierced through with objects and... And now I'm a member of the tribe and I've renounced my U.S. citizenship and I'm a, now I'm a part of this group. Or for, for that person, a Hutu in, in Africa, to, to become a, a Chinese national. Like, it's just not a thing that's done. This is, your, this is part of your identity. This is part of your, your, your politics, your identity. This, this, is, this is not a thing that's done. What are, you, what are you even talking about? That's Galatians. That's what... Paul is dealing with Jewish people who are being told that they are to be a part of a totally new thing. Galatians is about identity. It's about who we truly are. Right? Who were you and who are you now that you are in Christ? Those should be different things. There's obviously going to be some relation between them because you're you, but there's going to be a marked difference. Galatians is also about our political identity. What king, what kingdom owns your ultimate allegiance? What kingdom do we identify ourselves with? Look with me at Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. Here is the main point, Paul's goal, of the entire book of Galatians. He says this phrase twice, which is just so helpful. He says in Galatians 6, 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but a new creation is the only thing that counts. Jews who love your circumcision stuff, doesn't matter at all. Gentiles who want to take a stand against Jewish, doesn't matter at all. The only thing that matters is the new creation work that Jesus is bringing into this world through the work of the Spirit. He says almost the same thing back in chapter 5, verse 6. Look with me back at Galatians 5, verse 6. Here he says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The only thing that matters is Jesus' new creation coming into this world through the faith-filled love of His people. Now, he's writing Galatians to a group of people who said the only thing that matters is circumcision or uncircumcision. That's the only thing that counts. And he's saying it doesn't matter at all. Think about that. The, the thing that the world is saying is the most important thing about a person, Paul's saying, is not important at all. Not at all. Take the thing that matters the most, and now we're going to say it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't count for anything. (laughs) It gets rawer than that. Look back at chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither, look at that, neither what? Jew nor Greek. Neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. That's, again, everybody in the Roman Empire, in the Jewish world, they would have said, that's all there is. You're Jew or you're Gentile. You're slave or you're free. You're male or you're female. That's it. And he's saying there's none of it. For you are one in Christ Jesus. You are part of a new, something entirely new. Probably the the most extraordinary thing Statement of this is in chapter 2, verse 20. You probably have this tattooed somewhere on your person. This is a popular tattoo for millennials, I guess. I'll just say that. I have been, listen, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Plug all of our identity stuff into this. I got to find myself. I just got to, who am I really? Plug this in. I I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This this new creation imagination filters through the book of Galatians because this is what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to bring, bring Gentiles and Jews, he's trying to bring them into Jesus. And to show them that they're, they're something extraordinary, something utterly new, something apocalyptic and creative, something that's never been before on the planet, except in Genesis 1 and 2, and is now again, according to the Scriptures, but completely different than everybody's expectations. This totally new and wonderful thing. What Paul says in, in chapter 3, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. What does that mean? It means that the new creation marks the end of all previous social divisions, which are the sources of identity for many of us. All social divisions 
that form your identity, which you got from the world, are now null and void for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or chapter 6, verse 14, where we began here, thinking about new creation. You notice, this is, I don't know, I grew up in the church, so this verse is almost just a throwaway verse. It's hard for me to even, like, hear it. It just kind of goes, but, but let's slow down for just a second. Far be it from me, Paul says, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me. The world has been crucified to me. That means that the world's claims, its loyalties, its values, all those things are dead to me. They don't stir up sympathy in me. They don't call to me. And he goes on and says, the world's crucified to me and I'm crucified to the world. I am dead to the way that the world is trying to recruit me to its groups. And then back in chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. What are you saying? That whatever I was, whatever I am, is now defined by Christ and what he did for me and what he is in me. And that's it. All right, so that is an overview of the themes and story of Galatians. And now let me just wrap up by giving you something to chew on personally over the course of the next week. So look with me at Galatians 1.6. We're going to just track a, a brief theme here. Galatians 1.6, what does Paul say? He says, I'm astonished. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. And in chapter 3, verse 1, what does Paul say? He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? We don't like that word, bewitched. It's not a good word. He's saying somebody bewitched you with folly. Galatians is a critique. There's no way around it. It's a, it's a, it's a wake-up shake. It is a fact of biblical history and church history that God's people are, on a somewhat regular basis, bewitched in this way. That is, we are drawn to identify with different groups or different opinions in order to feel better about ourselves, to feel like we are more before God and others. We, we go with a Jesus and so that we feel better than other people or better than ourselves. And as we see in Galatians 2, this kind of temptation is not for just like simple-minded or worldly Americans or, or people who've been, whose lives are overtaken by technology. It's, for, it's the temptation that Peter fell into with Barnabas. Barnabas is one of these characters that every time he shows up in a story, you're like, oh, Barnabas. Right? He's like one of the few guys in the Bible where you're just like, oh, he's great. He ain't that great. He went along with Peter and the Judaizers for a season. This is a powerful temptation. So I would encourage you, for our church to benefit the most from the book of Galatians and our time in it, we may need to consider our bewitchment. I want you to know that this is not some sort of uh, heavy-handed uh, finger-wagging. This is the love, Galatians is the love of God waking us up. Have you ever interacted with somebody that you feel like, 
something is wrong. Like you might not want to be like, you've been bewitched. But you would be like, I don't know how to access this person in a helpful way. That's what Paul's talking about here. And, and Galatians is God trying to access us in a helpful way, even though we, we may be not where we'd like to be. Paul says to Peter in that story, he says, what you're doing is out of step with the truth of the gospel. Later on, he says, Galatians, I want you to walk, I want you to live in step with the Spirit. It's an interesting expression. Out of step with the gospel. We're living in step with the Spirit. So how are we bewitched? I would encourage you to reflect on what in our lives, what in our identity or in our politics, politics and our values are out of step with the truth of the gospel or out of step with the work of the Spirit. You know, sometimes we can say, oh no, everything I believe or do is in step with the gospel, but I... It's almost one of those things like, well, would you, would you say that if your mom was standing there? You know? like, would you do that or think that or, or say that if you could imagine the Holy Spirit of God was there with you? Are you in step with the Spirit in this? And of course, there's something here for all of us, none of us exempted, myself included, that we need to think about. So that's the question this morning. Are we willing to receive the book of Galatians as a church these next couple of months. Even if Galatians and this critique touches on some things that are a little bit sensitive, maybe things that we thought we've settled long ago or maybe things that are a little bit uh, raw and powerful today. And I think that we as a church are willing, but I know it won't always be easy. And so to prepare us, I'd like us to, I'd like us to take a minute, we'll pray this together and I just encourage you to, to pray it in your heart. So this is uh, Galatians 2.20, turned into a prayer. So I want you to, in, in the quiet of your heart, read this. And pray, Lord, I have been crucified with Christ, so may it be Christ who lives in me, and no longer I who live. And Spirit, as Paul says in chapter 4, would you form Christ in me? so that the life I live here and now may be a life of faith in Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. And now, Jesus, I give myself to you. So make that your prayer now. We'll take a minute. Read over that. Pray that in your spirit to the Lord, if you can. And ask him to prepare you for this study. Father God, we love the, the beauty and the power, but the the haunting truths of Galatians 2.20. And we want to step into them as a church and we want to receive them into us. And so, Lord, we acknowledge here that we too have been crucified with Christ. And now we ask that it might not, no longer be us who live, but Christ who lives in us. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would form Christ in us as individuals and as a group so that the life that we live here and now may be a life of faith in Jesus. And Jesus, we look to you as the one who loved us and gave yourself for us, and we thank you for that. And so now we give ourselves to you. Lord, help us to learn what that means and help it to more and more be the truth that we live with. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.